Jeremiah. Anyone need a Bible? Please raise your hand. We are in Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah chapter 16. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you so much for this, the testimony and the record of this man. What a blessing it is to read about the faithfulness of a man living in a generation who almost to a man opposed him, and yet he did it successfully even as he trusted in you. Lord, he is an example to all of us that you are faithful. And Father, I just pray by the Spirit of God you would just build us up, build us up, build up our church family this evening as we're in your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So Jeremiah 15, I don't know about you, but I, I was just so blessed last week as we uh, finished off Jeremiah 15. So many times you will see in Jeremiah, as we've already seen, he sort of freaks out and starts just pouring out his heart to the Lord. That's what makes Jeremiah so unique uh, amongst the prophets. And uh, in verse 18 of chapter 15, we saw that he calls God at the end of verse 18 an unreliable stream. The King James says a liar. He calls God a liar. He's just, uh, he, why? Because verse 18, it, he, he's complaining about his perpetual pain. It's just getting so bad. And, and somehow he's thinking that because there's pain, that God has not been faithful. And, that's how we get, right, when we're in, mis- in the midst of the trial, in the midst of pain. And he calls him a liar, but God comes immediately back and says in verse 19, hey, look, if you return, it's the word for repent, if you repent, this is what he does with us when we go off on him like this. If you repent, then I will bring you back and you shall uh, stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, in other words, if you these vile words that you're coming out of your mouth, if you just sort of set them aside, you shall be as my mouth. So he will continue to be used by God in spite of the fact he's just fleshed out and so many times. Uh, just in my own life, my own life as a pastor, as a, just a, someone who ministers to the Lord, it's, it's, it's you know, go out and flesh out and do something stupid, getting angry at some person somewhere, and, and, and such condemnation will come in. You know, you, a Christian, and you just did that? Well, this is a wonderful picture about the restoration, immediate restoration of the Lord. No you know, you're in the penalty box for six months or whatever. It's, you know, look, I want you to go right back out and be my mouthpiece. But you got to behave yourself, please, and repent. 
So in chapter 16, he, packs, uh, uh, he, he starts back up and says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they uh, be buried, but they shall be like refuge on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and by the corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And so... uh, The Lord is telling Jeremiah, you shall not take a wife, and and, and nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Now, it's really important to understand that this is the only such exhortation. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, a, a direct command to an individual prophet where God is telling him, don't get married and, and, and you're not going to have any kids. You know, re- recently, just in the last couple of months, my kids have, have been asking me, why did the priests in the Catholic Church, um, why don't they get married? Well, really, they didn't get that from anything in the Bible. In fact, the priests in the Old Testament had to be married. They were, the high priest was commanded to be married because it was through him that the high priest line went on. It was the, the line of Aaron. Uh, and in the New Testament as well, Peter clearly uh, was married. Now, Jesus said uh, that some will become eunuchs for the kingdom of God, meaning there is, and Paul refers to this too, also the gift of uh, staying single and remaining pure is a gift that some people have, but nowhere is it a requirement for ministry. And so it's a, it's, it's a tragedy what has happened in, in some denominations where that requirement has been uh, imposed because anytime man goes beyond what God requires, it's just a disaster. <laughs> And, so, and, it, and it's, a, it, it's just setting people up for a fall. But he's telling Jeremiah this, and, and you know, this is giving... Uh, Jer- Jeremiah throughout is getting these really terrible pictures of what, ti- what is to come. And that's part of the reason that he, he's weeping every other chapter. He's crying out to God. He's shuddering for his people. He's having visions with his neighbors and his community, just with their dead bodies. I mean, it's, 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 it's really, really intense. But he was living amongst a rebellious people. Verse 5, For thus says the Lord, Do not enter into the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. He's just removing it. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men men lament 
for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Now, that's a strange verse. Well, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, it specifically commands, Deuteronomy is sort of a recap of the law that Moses gave to Israel when they were on the other side of the Jordan, right before they pass over the Jordan to the promised land, he gives basically a recap of the law. And then there were some additional laws uh, put in there, and one of them was this, that when your relatives or friends die, don't cut yourself. Don't cut off your hair. And, that, and, and this is a little picture here. And, and, and why did he tell, why did Moses tell him that? Because that's what the pagan people around Israel did. Their brother would die. Their mother would die. They would start to cut themselves and bleed. This is a common practice amongst false religion historically. And... Uh, and this is what they did. But in verse 6 here, we learn the Jews were doing this. So they had just adopted the practices of the people around them, and they were shaving off their head and, and, and you know, cutting themselves. And, you know, one of the reasons that, among other things, that God told them not to do things like that is cutting themselves when a loved one dies because to the people of God... Death is not a bad thing. You'd be in the Old Testament, you'd be in the bosom of Abraham. Now, they did not have, the Bible says in Timothy that Jesus, you know, light and immortality came to life through, light through the, uh, through the, through the gospel. I'll say that one more time. Life and immortality came to light through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, they didn't quite have the same uh, revelation that we do concerning the afterlife, but still at the time there was this concept of, uh, for, for, the, um, for, for a man of God, a woman of God, of, of bo- uh, the bosom of Abraham, the, the resting place for the righteous. And, 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 and God didn't want people cutting themselves up because a loved one, something good happened to them. Uh, for a Christian, a believer in God, a funeral is a celebration of life for someone um, who dies in the Lord. And, and, but anyway, this is what they were doing. And, and he, he's saying, and you know, you guys are going to die, and so many people are going to die in, in so many numbers. No one's even going to be having funerals anymore. That's what the judgment is going to be like. Nor shall men break bread and mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men, verse 7, give them the cup of consolation to drink their for their father or their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it shall be when you show this people all these words that they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord? 
our God. Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. So again, we've Discuss this. The same phrase has been used a couple times in Jeremiah already. Each man follows the dictates of his own evil heart. And, and society is in deep, deep doo-doo when everyone just does what is, what is right in their own mind. Big, big trouble when a society gets to that point. And that's what, uh, that's, how, you know, what had become of the nation of Israel. And in verse 13 it says, Therefore I I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. So he says, you know, you guys want to worship other gods? You want to be cutting yourself at funerals? You want to be worshiping? I mean, offering and sacrificing your kids to the fire? Remember remember previous chapters dealt with that? That's what they were doing. I'll send you to a place, man, where they worship idols day and night. He's talking about Babylon, seven to nine hundred miles away. Verse 13, a place that they do not know, neither them nor their fathers. And Babylon was just a world center at the time for idolatry. And, you know, essentially what the Lord does with us sometime is is when we are just going after sin, and we're just eating it up, and we're just pursuing it, after a while, we reach the point where he'll say, he'll say okay, you want that? Have it. I'm going to rub your nose in it, your face in it. And that's what they got in Babylon. Now, if you do a history of Israel, the amazing thing is idolatry stopped. After Babylon, you do not have Jesus, for example, talking to the Israelites. He had a lot to say in Matthew 23. I mean, he called them whitewashed tombs, and uh, and he he rebuked them in, in in so many ways. Whitewashed tomb filled with dead man's bones, and you know, he told them, "You travel land and sea to win a single convert." And, when you succeed, you make them twice as much a hell as you are. I mean, I mean, he was really confronted them, but never for little idols. And that's kind of interesting because virtually every prophet in the Old Testament, that was a theme. But the Lord, in his mercy, sent them to Babylon, rubbed their face in what that really was like, the light that really was like, and it cured them of it. Amazing, huh? Verse 14, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall be, it'll no more be said, the Lord lives who brought 
up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the all the land where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their father. So every once in a while, uh, God is merciful here to throw in hope, although here it, it is a distant hope, where he says, look, you guys will be banished, but you will come back from Israel will be banished, they will be exiled, but they will be brought back. Kind of interesting, you know, throughout the prophets, we have seen a short-term fulfillment and also a long-term fulfillment. In verse 15, it says they'll, they'll come back from the north, and they did. The Israelites came back to the north, and they came back into Israel. But just in the last 10 to 20 years, the I believe the number one, uh, the number one, the highest percentage of immigrants into Israel is from Russia, from the north. And so could be, could be one of these short-term and long-term fulfillments here, uh, here in the book of Jeremiah. But then he goes right back, speaking of judgment in verse 16, behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after it, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. You know, it, had said, it has been said before that all sin is rooted in unbelief. I think that's kind of an overstatement, but as a general matter, I, it, it has a lot of truth to it, that if we really believed who, who God is and, and, and we really believe his word, we wouldn't sin. We, and so many times we just rationalize thinking, well, God not, doesn't really know or really care what I'm doing. <laughs> And, and actually, what he says here, not only do I not, I, not only is it true that I see everything you're doing, I'm going to go into every mountain and every hill and out of the hole of a rock for 16 and, and pull you out and bring judgment to wherever you are. In Hebrews, it's a, a familiar uh, verse. In Hebrews, it says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so there's that compartmentalization that we do in our lives. We, have, we just put a sin area and we compartmentalize it and we put it away in a certain area of our life pretend it's not there, that God doesn't see it, but he does. He says in verse 18, at first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. Whew, I tell you, Sunday night, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. <laughs> Then all of a sudden, and we saw this a lot in Isaiah, but here Jeremiah does it. 
he, he comes out with this burst of light, this prophetic utterance about the future. He says, O Lord, my strength, my fortress, my refuge. This is Jeremiah speaking now my, uh, about, you know, to himself and the Lord. He's speaking to the Lord. O Lord, my strength, my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jewish nations, shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make God for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. He's talking about you here. This is the prophecy about you, unless you're Jewish. <laughs> and if you are a student of the Old Testament, you will know that this is a really, really, th these would be really, really strange words to fall upon the ears of a Jewish believer. You know, our family is going through a family devotion time in the book of Nehemiah. And, you know, it's just amazing uh, the attitude of Nehemiah towards all the nations around him. I mean, he, he basically didn't trust them. And for good reason, because they were some seriously wicked nations surrounding Jerusalem while they were rebuilding the gates and the temp uh, and rather the, the, the walls of Jerusalem, Sambalat and Tobiah. And these people would come in and they would try to convince ne uh, Nehemiah to, uh, you know, meet him in the, some town or go into the temple and meet with them there. And they, at one point they said, hey, well, let us join you in what you're doing. We want to help you build a temple. And, and, and Nehemiah said, no way. Lev Ezra said the same thing. No way. We're not letting you guys participate in God's work here. And it's because they were completely, utterly untrustworthy they, 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 were, they were God haters, they were troublemakers, and they just wanted to get in, and it's a device of the enemy, device of Satan, to, to come in and get unequally yoked and this type of thing. And so, as a general rule throughout Jewish history, and certainly if you read some of the Talmud, the attitude towards the Gentiles was, ugh. You weren't even allowed. If you rubbed up against a Gentile in the market, you were unclean and you couldn't go into the temple. Now, it got really, really spiritually unhealthy. It went totally overboard. But, but here, Jeremiah is saying, O Lord, my strength, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth. And he says they're going to repent. They're going to say, surely our fathers have inherited lies. All that our forefathers, it was just pagan weirdness. You are the one true God. And then it, uh, verse 21 is just an awesome verse. It says, therefore, behold, I will once cause them to know. I will cause them to know. Know what? Jesus Christ, the living God, he will cause them to know and they shall know that my name is the Lord. 
And in other words, that no, that, that the word no, yada in Hebrew, Adam knew Eve and begat Cain. I will cause them to know me. They will know me in an intimate way. And, you know, in, Ma- in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, he has a series of parables like this. He says, there was a certain landowner. This is chapter 22, verse uh, uh, chapter uh, 21, verse 33. There's a series of parables like this where, where Jesus mentions this whole thing that God will send prophets and prophets and prophets. And finally, after total rejection, he's going to give the lampstand over to the Gentiles. And in Matthew 22, verse 33, there's one of them that you, many of you are familiar with it. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time, harvest time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive his fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to Jesus, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to others. And Jesus said to them, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Speaking, one's going to be judged, and the other, one is going to be grinded into judgment. The other one's going to be broken into repentance. And so we see that there in in Jeremiah, this sort of burst of light in the middle of a very, very dark prophecy, which starts right back up in verse 1 of chapter 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So a diamond, we know that some things need to be cut with a diamond because it's one of the hardest, is it chemical compounds? Is that what you call it? Diamonds are the hardest substance on earth. And so the, the hearts of the Israelites were so hard. <laughs> but a diamond had to be used, and, and, and it, the sin was written on their hearts with it and, and on the horns of their altar while their children, verse 2, while their children remember uh, their altars and their wooden images. Now, that's an incredibly sad verse right there. Remember why the Passover and other feasts were given to the children of Israel? Why? So the children would remember the faithfulness of the Lord. And when it's gotten to the point 
where the children are not remembering the faithfulness of the Lord, but they're remembering the altars and the wooden images, meaning the pagan statues or whatever, things are in a low, low place. By the green trees on the high hills, that's, that's the, the... When you see that, the, the groves and the high places, the green, referring to the sexual practices done amongst the groves... Verse 3, O my mountain in the field, I will give you as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. God doesn't change. He's a consuming fire. His holiness is represented by the fact that um, there's, there's a holy anger, and it, it, it burns. Cursed. Now, here's two, uh, actually four verses. That, no, strike that. Five verses that are oft quoted, quoted very often. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. When... Rome went and destroyed Carthage. I forget when it was. It was 200 B.C. or something like that. Carthage was in northern Africa. They burned the whole thing down, and then the emperor ordered the place to be just covered, plastered with salt. So they burned it down, ripped down all the buildings, and just plastered it with salt. And it just, the salt preventing any vegetation from coming up. It's just a, a picture of devastation. There's a really great insight here into what happens when man trusts in man. When man trusts in man. It says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. It says in verse 6, he shall not see good when good comes. If there's anything I see happening in the world and particularly being out in the corporate world for many, many years and in the workforce and just reading the secular media, it's that when you trust in man, when a man trusts in man after a while, they grow completely cynical. What I mean by cynical? They just assume the worst in everything and everybody. They see any good thing. And they will start to come up with all the self-centered reasons that good thing is being done. A church is, is, is feeding the poor. And the report on it will be, well, that's to justify, you know, all the high-paid salaries all the pastors get in the church or something. I mean, they will try to come up with some negative reason for everything. I remember reading an article a few years ago about this one 
this man who had endorsed a politician and who was running for president. And a magazine was reporting on the fact that this man had endorsed this guy who was running for president. And the magazine reported, reported all the reasons this guy must have en- endorsed this, this guy running for president. And every single one of them had to do with, well, because he wants a, um, a place in his cabinet or, you know, his, his relative, you know, his cousin knows the politician's aunt's sister or something. Or, well, you know, he, he may eventually want to do some partnership with a guy. There was not one single reason that this magazine article gave that maybe the guy just thought he was the best candidate. Like, that would be a shocking thing that someone would endorse someone purely because the guy's a good candidate. But that's what happens to man when after a lifetime of just trusting in man. Why? Because man is always going to let you down. So you're always, after a while, you're just going to always be assuming the worst. You know, and it's a tragedy to go go through that. And that's why so many people, I've noticed over the years, so many people who go off into secular uh, organizations, non-governmental organizations, which are working in foreign countries, they come back completely disillusioned after two, five, or ten years. And they just give up and they go on and they become an investment banker or something like that. You know, they started off, they were going to change the world. Because they trusted in man and the ideals of man. And they're working for man. On the contrary, you will see, not all, but you'll see, not unusually, a a person who goes to the mission field for the Lord. And the years in the mission field will make them warmer, more loving, more positive about the future. So many teachers getting into uh, public schools or whatever, they go in, they, they, they're, they just want to, to, to teach the kids, they want to change the community, change the world. Man, after 10, 15 years, they become so cynical. Why? Because they're trusting in man and the ideals of man. And men, children, school children, Parents of school children will let them down time after time after time after time. People do that. But when you're serving the Lord and you're not serving man but God and you take your appreciation and your reward from the Lord and not man, that will make you flourish. That will actually give you an optimistic view of the future. And that's what verse 7 is about. Blessed is the man who uh, trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So just lest anybody, even though no one was listening to Jeremiah, and they weren't. We've, we've gone through those verses. In chapter 1 it says, God tells Jeremiah, everyone's going to be against you. Even though no one's listening, it's interesting how the Lord always interjects 
just lest you think that there's never any hope and that God has just closed off the door and that man is incapable of coming to the Lord and prospering, there's a very easy way. Trusting in the Lord, hoping in the Lord. They're, tre- they're like a tree planted by the waters who spread out its roots by the river. And the river is what? It just represents, it's, it's, it's the water. It's, it's the word of God. It's the spirit of the Lord. It's the life of God. Their leaf will be green and they will not be anxious in the year of drought. So drought, meaning there's no food in the land and everyone's in a panic and and they're able to have peace and they prosper. There is a prosperity. Messiah Rogers last night told us that, man, no matter how bad things get, you trust in the character of God and you will receive a reward. You will be blessed. There will be a blessing. I don't know what form or fashion it will take. I was just, I, I don't know how many of you are baseball fans, but I know there's a few. Like how many of you know how rare it is? First of all, how many of you know what a perfect game is? A perfect game by a pitcher. All right. That's right. Just yesterday. See, my mother. Philip Humber yesterday <laughs> tossed a perfect game. Yeah, the Red Sox need him. And a perfect game is its more than a no-hitter. A, a no-hitter is when a pitcher goes nine innings and they don't give up a hit. A perfect game is not only do they not give up a hit, they um, don't give up a walk or even let any base runner get on even through another, even through a player's error, so he's relying on, on on his teammates as well not to commit an error. He only faces 27 batters the whole game. There's 27 batters in a nine-inning game if there's a perfect game. So this guy threw one yesterday, and there's only been 21 ever. So that's about one every seven years because baseball's been around what 150 years, something like that. So one every seven years. Turns out the guy is a born-again Christian. And uh, I just, incredibly great story. The guy gets drafted in 2004. He immediately has this major uh, injury on his elbow. And six years of failure. Just, Lord, why, why, why? And then this is just hilarious. So last year, after six years of failure, the Chicago White Sox, after three other teams had dumped him, gave him a chance. And his first two pitches, his first two pitches were in the late innings. Each of the people got a hit, and then he was removed. So he came in for two pitches, his first two pitches ever. Each batter hit the ball and got on base. He was yanked, and then both of those scored. Both those guys scored, which means his ERA that he started off with in the major leagues was infinity. <laughs> so I don't know if you know baseball, but a, a good ERA is anything from two to four. Some people even go under two, but two to four. A terrible ERA is from four to ten. This guy's ERA was infinity. 
And it says he got, he got on the bus. He got on the bus after the game, April 3rd, 2011. And he said he was just praying, why did you put me here, God? You just want to embarrass me some more? And so that was a year ago. Now he goes from an ERA of infinity to a perfect game. Is that awesome or what? And, of course, he's praising the Lord, and uh, God's using him. He's just talking about uh, he's been able to witness to people, and every time he gets off the mound, he, uh, he, uh, he prays to the Lord. But the Lord will use those seasons where we're really confused and where things have dried up tremendously. But, you know, eventually, as we're pouring our life uh, into the Lord, um, there, there will be a reward there. There will be uh, uh, leaves that's, uh, uh, and, and roots that, that's, uh, it says the tree will spread out its roots by the river. And there will be the, the, the tree will begin to, to bloom and to, and to blossom. So I love that. But anyway, in verse 9, this is probably quoted uh, actually far more than the previous four verses. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know this? Who can know it, rather? So you may look at those verses, verses 5 through 8, and say, well, this just seems so simple. The Lord just puts cursings and blessings before the people of Israel, and he did that in in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, Deuteronomy 28. He says, you do this, you'll be blessed. You do this, and you'll you'll be cursed. And and Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8, he says, you know, it, you, you'll, be, you'll be cursed if you do this. You'll be blessed if you do that. So what's the problem? The problem is the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. You know, that word desperately wicked there is, is actually one Hebrew word it's the same word used in Jeremiah 15. Is it? Let me see. Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15. I'm, I'm looking for where it is. Where Jeremiah says that my wound is incurable. My wound is incurable. And it's the same word, desperately wicked, and incurable, same thing. And and um, I can't find it now. I don't remember. Maybe what is it? Fifteen eighteen. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? So same same word is verse nineteen in the Hebrew. Desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's incurable. It's an incurable wound. And that's the problem. Guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. There's one thing that is absolutely the case, and that is your heart will always 
make a convert of your mind. I mean, your passions and the passions that you feed in your life will always make a convert of your mind. It'll overtake reason. And that's why it's so important, the Bible says, that we guard what comes into our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, as a partridge that broods but does not hash, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and in his end he will be a fool. And then all of a sudden, a, a glorious burst of light again. Again, we see this in the prophets. It's almost as if, you know, God knew the prophets weren't going to be able to take so much doom coming out of their mouth, and they, he would just give them something glorious. Verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. The Bible says that Jesus was, uh, was slain before the foundation of the world. There's a high throne. This is speaking of, of, the, of the very presence of God. It's not speaking about the temple. The temple is going to be wiped out. It's going to be burned down. It's going to be destroyed. And here's just a glorious light, a burst of hope, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So no matter how bad it gets, and man, have we seen a description of bad. So many corpses in the field that people aren't even going to be having funerals. But the Lord is telling Jeremiah that even in the midst of that, the place of your sanctuary is the glorious high throne that has been from the beginning. It's a glorious verse. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of of living waters. So that may be an illusion. As I said before, there's not as much revelation in the Old Testament to life after death, but an illusion to the, dest the destiny of the wicked, the fate of the wicked written in the earth. I mean, there's no place in heaven for them. Heal me, O Lord. And I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. You know, Jeremiah was a fragile guy just like every other human being. And when you have a calling like Jeremiah's, we read it in Chapter 1, where the Lord said to him, prepare yourself because, behold, I'm going to make you a fortified city against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, against the people of the land. They will fight against you. When you have that calling, 
anyone who is in that calling. So Elijah found himself in the same place. Why don't you just kill me, God? I can't take this anymore. And he's, he's just in, in the midst of his calling, in the midst of his prophetical, prophetical calling here, he's just saying, heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. I can't take this anymore. Why? What can he take? Well, there's, he's just surrounded by mockers. Verse 15, it says, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. They're mocking him. They're mocking him. You know, it's hard today, even today, speaking about the return of Christ, something Jesus was very, very specific about. The world's going to mock it. I mean, when you see the, the, uh, probably the most stereotypical thing, you're reading New Yorker magazine or something like that or whatever, the Times or, or something like that, and there'll be this guy with a beard and a robe, the end is near, and they're just mocking prophecy. They're mocking the prophecy of the Lord. And, and, and it's, it's pretty hard when you're the only guy out there. And that is what Jeremiah was going through. Verse 16, as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. So he's thinking the Lord is not being faithful. So here he goes again. He's, he's arguing with the Lord because certainly if he's in this much pain, uh, it must be a punishment from the Lord, and it wasn't a punishment at all. As for me, verse 16, I have not heard away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right before you. Do not, uh, do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who... Uh, let them be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. So a couple of things going on, but he's in all this pain. He's in this tremendous trial, and he can't separate the fact that this trial that he's in is really just the rebellion of the people, is the result of the rebellion of the people around him and has nothing to do with his own sin or lack of faithfulness to God. So he's getting into this argument with God, I have been faithful, so why have all this pain? There's no, this pain has nothing to do with your lack of faithfulness. It has to do with the, the, the rebellion of the people around you. But then he comes in verse 18 and says, please, would you just destroy them with a double destruction, which is very different than the heart we have seen, and I believe we'll see again in Jeremiah where he weeps for the people. But from time to time, he just can't take it anymore. And he's like, Lord, would you just take these people out? Verse 19, then the Lord said to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the Israel by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out in all the gates of Jerusalem. So he stands in the gate of Jerusalem. Verse 20 says, and say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. And thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but they made their necks stiff and that they might hear nor receive instruction. 
And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing them sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall, it shall not be quenched. So see, you see here this sort of final warning uh, to the people that, and he just takes a specific law, obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now the Sabbath was very unique in that it was... It was unique to Israel in the old, in, I believe in Exodus, it's called a sign between God and Israel, was that the Sabbath was. You know, circumcision was also something practiced by the Israelites, but it was not unique to Israel. There were other ethnic groups and things that practice uh, circumcision. The Sabbath was original, it was something which set them apart. What? One day a week? From sunset to sunset, you're not working? Why would you ever do something like that? It's a Sabbath rest to the Lord. So it was a sign. It was a sign to, uh, to, uh, to the world that this was God's people. So just enormously important, but it was, it was ignored. It was largely ignored. Sabbath, by the way, was not only one, one rest one day a week, it was also rest the land one year every seven years. And so that was never practiced ever. So for 490 years after they went into the, the promised land, they never obeyed that. So God exiled them for 70 years because 490 divided by seven is 70 70 years, you didn't obey the Sabbath, I will exile you for 70 years. But, but here uh, is bringing up, look at the sign that I gave you. You've just completely mushed it. You've destroyed the sign. And people look at you, and they no longer see you as a light to the world. The Israel was raised up by God, so people would look at it and say, ah, the living God. The Sabbath was just one of many ways that was done, but it, it was one of the ways. It was a very, very important and central to the life of Israel. But they weren't, they weren't obeying the Sabbath anymore or any of other God's laws. When their family members died, they were cutting off their hair bald and cutting up their bodies. Just completely abandoned the word of the Lord. I'm so thankful that all that law in the Old Testament and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus was satisfied in Christ. 
Jesus fulfilled it all perfectly. And that we can just rest in his faithfulness to all that law. And apart from grace, this is the best that we can do that we're reading here in Jeremiah. We're just going to be miserable failures. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This is the best that man could do when righteousness was attained by following the law. Praise the Lord for our Savior who fulfilled it all for us and we can just rest in, in his righteousness.